Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joyce Chang uh, with us now, head of research at uh, J.P. Morgan. Joyce has wonderful mathematical abilities out of Berkeley. We're thrilled that she could join us this morning. Joyce, we had the honor of talking to John Loys recently. It was my research paper this summer, not on a forecast, but on a model of how the U.S. 10-year yield would migrate lower and lower, and dare I say J.P. Morgan alluded to U.S. Uh, negative interest rates as a possibility. Can, can the United States culturally, socially, financially handle negative interest rates. Are we prepared to be like Germany and Switzerland? I think in the U.S., I mean, you can see negative yields happen because we're just so close to that edge. But as a matter of policy, you know, negative deposit rates, I do not see the Fed going there at all. Now, they're going to have to stay with zero rates, you know, the forward guidance, Increasing the purchases is, I think, the route they're going to go, and even yield curve control. But I think the Fed's going to go through a lot more of the toolkit before they think that would be the right option to take. And I think Powell's comments have made that very clear. Joyce, there's an interesting distinction here between market-determined uh, negative rates, as we're seeing in the United Kingdom, and frankly, as we've seen in the U.S., perhaps not at sale, but certainly in post-sale trading, and the actual policy rate. How long can this continue where the market is pricing in negative yields while the policy rate remains positive? Everybody's going to just have to take a look at what kind of recovery lies ahead. Now, we're looking at a third quarter rebound um, that we think could be around 37% annualized after going down so hard in the first half. Now, you're starting to see the recovery take place. So you're going to have um, a discussion on just the path of the recovery. You know, we're still a long ways from talking about inflation as being a problem. There's a whole discussion on, you know, deflationary risk. You know, that's really heating up in Japan in particular. And so I think that, you know, this is something that is going to take time. You could have negative yields and flirting with those negative yields there for quite some time. And we saw that happen after the global financial crisis, and it's enduring now. So I don't think that we're going to go away from this topic anytime soon. Yeah, this is a question I've raised on this program a couple of times. In Europe, we saw that in 2011, 2012, the front end of a lot of core European sovereign debt markets was negative. Several years before negative rates actually became a reality at the policy level in 2014. Joyce, what I think is quite interesting going forward is we do face the very real prospect of the UK joining the club. We've had two policymakers in the last few days alone start to talk up negative interest rates. So let's game this out a little bit. You could have a negative policy rate at the ECB, a negative policy rate at the BOJ potentially, and at the Bank of England, all three. And then look at the Federal Reserve. I see no willingness whatsoever to go there. We all hope they don't. But let's talk about what that could mean for the Treasury market. If we have several big and important central banks in the world with negative interest rates, how that shapes the front end of the Treasury market. Yeah, you know, you know, look, I, I think what you've seen the, you, the Treasury do is they announced for this quarter just record issuance. I mean, $3 trillion. We haven't ever seen anything like that. So that, I think, is going to be very hard to absorb um, you know, on the long end of it. But I think you're right. On the front end, everybody is looking at this 
global dynamic right now. And the fact that you have even emerging market central banks um, flirting with QE right now and still that you know, yields are coming down there. So, you know, th- that you're going to move into negative yields, even if it's not deliberate yeah. policy, I think is just a reality that's with us right now. Can you flip the reciprocal? Joyce Chang, can you take all this bond talk? I mean, that's all Farrell wants to do, folks, is bond talk. Because this is the real that. yield. Look for the you real yield. this conversation. The real yield under discussion to I return no shortly. Joyce Chang, can you flip the reciprocal and get yourself to huge valuations for equities? I mean, I don't even know what you do with a negative rate and a flip reciprocal to get to a multiple of 30, 40 for a utility. But can you can you just keep the linkage with bonds and equities intact? Well, I think you're still going to see a winner-takes-all um, strategy play out in equity. So the tech sector has moved away from you know the rest of the market. That was in place even before the pandemics, and now you're seeing that even more exaggerated. So you know, on the equity market, there's going to be a focus on um, you know, earnings, dividends. We've seen um, dividends being suspended in 33 companies. We've seen them being cut in um, you know, more companies as well. So I think on the equity market, the, um, the focus is once again going to be winner takes all. A lot of the tech sector, you know, at the pharma sector have you know, sort of moved you know, away from where the rest of the market is. And I think the debate will you know, actually look at what's the, what's the impact um, that this is going to have as far as the duration um, and as you said, with Europe, this went on for you know years, and is something that became you know is it exceptional? Is this like a fast um, you know fall down in in the um, GDP numbers, and we're going to have a quick backup, and we're normalizing to something, or are we really stuck in something that's much more a malaise that could go on for a longer period of time? Tom, I'm really glad you brought this up. I've actually been giving a lot of thought to this, and I was looking at sort of the Fed model, at the dividend yield, the earnings yield on the S&P, for example, versus treasuries. And the problem that I have, and Tom, maybe you've done more research on this than I, the problem I have is how much is that dividend yield forward-looking, and how much have stock investors already priced in some of the cuts that we're seeing. Halliburton, for example, today, reducing its dividend by 75%. You know, how much is the bond market pricing in well more uh, than the dividend yield currently is? But this is brilliant, Joyce, because what this comes down to, to your point, uh, Joyce Chang, and winner takes all, is the idea that we're going to have these few companies with persistent cash flows that can lead to that dividend growth belief that Lisa's talking about to get to a higher valuation. Uh, Joyce, Mike, Michael Mabusian years ago at Credit Suisse and Leg Mason uh, was brilliant on this. Is that where we're heading, Joyce? And is it just fewer winners? I mean, is that all this is coming? It's not going to be S&P 500, John. It's going to be S&P 125. Well, I think that's what we're seeing is that there's just more consolidation that's going on as a result of this crisis. And you know, I think a lot of people still look at the equity market and say, look, this doesn't really reflect the growth expectations. It's in line with the credit spread tightening. So this still goes back to the policy support that we're seeing, the Fed facilities, the fact that you've got you know, high-grade bond issuance this year hitting a record $1.6 trillion. So is it about the growth or is it about the credit spread tightening, the Fed facilities? Um, and um, is this something where we're just going to see greater concentration, which happens after a lot of crisis? It's the survival of the fittest. Joyce, fantastic to catch up with you. Joyce Chank, J.P. Morgan Chair Fabulous. of Global Research. 
Right now, out of physics at Yale and Case Western is Matthew Harrison and Morgan Stanley, who has an acuity on biotech like no one out there. Matthew, what's the biggest hot air you see right now? To John's point, and I don't mean to pick on Moderna, but what's the hot air of biotechnology right now that you dismiss the most? Um, I mean... Are you asking specifically related to COVID, Tom, or, or something just broadly No, to COVID. I mean, COVID's what we're focused on, Matthew. Let's stay with that. What's the thing yeah, that upsets sure. you the most? Well, I don't think there's something that upsets me the most. I mean, I think, I think the thing for everybody to remember here is, is twofold. One, there's a lot of early data, and everybody's very focused on looking for treatments. And I think companies are doing the best job they can, but we should be careful and understanding that data is early and data is subject to change and, and just being realistic about that. I think, you know, you've got a lot of uh, generalists and people who don't typically look at these stocks. And so understanding what we know and what we don't know, um, I think is important. And I think is a, a skill that people are maybe getting used to because they didn't always have to, to look at early data sets like this. So Matt, help us build that skill, because I think it's absolutely critical. It's a blind spot for so many of us. It's your world. And I think at the moment, subconsciously, people are biased because they really want these potential vaccines to work. We all want to believe they'll work. I also think there's an obvious social stigma attached to journalists and analysts and people more broadly who aren't familiar with these names to ask necessary questions, to be sceptical. So can you help establish some guardrails for us as for when this news comes out again, this kind of news, how we can look at it a little bit more critically? Yeah, I think it's. I th- I think that the biggest understanding is to know what we know and what we know. And so, I would say the core of the debate right now is that we don't. We still don't know what level of antibodies are protective for people with COVID. And so, comparing results from vaccine studies or other clinical studies against surrogate endpoints, right? Because what's been reported so far is a surrogate endpoint. Usually, in a large-scale study, you're going to just test people who didn't get a vaccine and people who got a vaccine and find out if less people got infected with the disease who got the vaccine. That's the, that's the true, the true sort of marker. But right now we're relying on surrogate endpoints. And because we're so early in the stages of, of the outbreak, all of the work has not been done to establish exactly what level of antibodies are protected. People have guesses. We have ideas. We know what we should focus on in terms of that. But I don't think scientifically that debate has been settled. And so Therefore, in trying to understand um, how to interpret results, that scientific debate, I think, spills out into the media. I love this line in a Drew Armstrong story of Bloomberg News. By the standards of medical studies, such early partial data are considered the territory of specialists and day traders. I want to talk about the share sale that Moderna completed uh, late Monday. $1.3 billion uh, of stock sold arguably perhaps at the highs, at least of the recent moment. And I'm wondering, can you give us a pathway from a vaccine, Matthew, to profits and how investors can really value a first mover kind of advantage here? Sure. We, we've tried to think about what the market may look like, and I, and I describe the market in two ways, right? There's, in our view, there's going to be the pandemic market, which probably lasts through 2022, and then the endemic market. And what I mean, the difference there is once you get through the pandemic period and you have to vaccinate everybody or try to vaccinate everybody, there's likely to be portions of the population that haven't been vaccinated 
the disease might mutate. Children who are born need to be vaccinated. And so that's going to be smaller, but that might be a longer tail. And so we've tried to price the vaccine, you know, at least theoretically, around the pricing of flu vaccines, which are among the lowest um, of vaccines available. And so the numbers we put is, is that the pandemic period is likely between 10 and $30 billion, and the endemic period is somewhere between 2 and 25. The, the reason for that wide range, especially in the endemic period, is because we don't really know how much of the population needs to be revaccinated, either on an annual or, or, or some other basis. Matthew, what will the big companies do? I mean, there's the idea of traditional pharmacology and then your esoteric world of biotech, and everybody gets all lathered up and they go to lunches to decide which biotech company to buy. Is that what's the future of feeding frenzy of the bigger companies, the bigger pharmacology companies buying up the biotechs? I think that's a I think that's a theme, right? That that we've we've observed for a while. Um, biotech companies tend to be more entrepreneurial, tend to take more risk, tend to use yeah. newer technologies, and once they're proven, and you know they might be a a new uh, a new way to move quicker or move faster, right? Large companies tend to look at them, and I think that the biggest difference is sometimes smaller companies have resources to focus on one small area where their technology could work. But once you prove that, a big company can say, well, I can apply that for 10 or 20 ways, and they have the, the massive amount mm -hmm. of ability to, to push that forward. Matthew Harrison, thank you so much with Morgan Stanley today on Moderna and all of biotech. Megan Green has had a wonderful set of academics and then work uh, in market economics, and now she has her parchment out at the Harvard Kennedy School where she is a senior fellow. Me Megan, are we still in the United States where all this policy is stimulus? Or are we finally getting to the point where we're going to admit it's about 3 million jobless claims in its income substitution, wage substitution, and, de and indeed demand assistance? So I think we are getting to the latter, actually. Um, and you can see it in terms of, uh, you know, who Joe Biden has been bringing on to advise him, for example. So there are signs that there might be a shift further towards the left, bringing people on like Stephanie Kelton, right, who's a big MMT proponent. There, It's just the beginning of a kernel of a hint that actually the Democratic Party is starting to think maybe kind of a right. 2.0 isn't going to do it. We're going to need... To, to rethink how we approach the economy okay. because a lot of people, you know, were outraged that, you know, half of Americans made more now on this unemployment insurance than they did in their regular jobs and thought that meant there was a problem with the unemployment insurance. But that's not the problem. The problem is that we've been paying people so little to begin with, and now lots of them don't even have jobs. So okay, I think but, there's a but, hint that we're looking at demand boosting. Megan, brilliant. But if, if, if Mr. Biden swings to a policy prescription, much like Europe, is the rest of America going to go with him, or is he going to hand the presidency to a conservative America that flat out doesn't agree with that prescription? Well, uh, that's a great question, and I think anyone would be crazy to try to handicap the election <laughs> at this point. But I yeah, but you're at Harvard, so you can do that. <laughs> I am at Harvard, but I, I think it's honestly too too difficult to tell. Um, I do think that people are realizing with this crisis, if they weren't before, that you know a lot about our economy is broken, right? Our healthcare is broken, our education is broken. 
we protect the most vulnerable is broken. And so I do think, you know, whether it's from the left side or maybe even the right side, uh, we're all going to have a bigger role for the government in our lives. And that's generally a pernicious thing. We don't like that. It means higher taxes and maybe surveillance, with contact tracing, all kinds of negative things. But there could be a positive implication in that maybe we start to rethink our economy and figure out how to protect those most vulnerable. And perhaps we should be doing that. But there is this terrible habit, and I'm not saying you're doing it, Megan, because I know you're not. There's just this terrible habit at the moment of looking down your nose at people who are taking entitlement spending, if it's benefits, whatever it is, welfare, if it's employment benefits, and believing that somehow people would rather be on that than have a job. I don't know anyone that would prefer to have a handout over having a job. And having that empowering moment of going to work. And for me, Megan, the story going into November is who's got the message to say that we're going to create the most jobs, they're going to be well-paid jobs, and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, and this this time really is different in that you can easily look and say, actually, all these people out of work, it is not their fault, right? This virus is nobody's fault. And so that does mean there is opportunity for kind of social mobilization here in a way that there hasn't been in the past. Um, so I do, I do think there could be hope for some kind of change on that front. And if you look at history, right, the NHS and council flats in the UK came out of world wars. Social Security came out of the Great Depression. So stranger things have happened. I will say, though, Megan, the conversation in Washington seems to be shifting, at least among Republicans, to tying the next phase of rescue financing to employment with a payroll tax cut or other types of sort of employment contingent benefits. How do you see that factoring into the next phase of recovery, if at all, given that the previous rounds were really focused on the unemployed, the people who are furloughed or lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, I think you point out a weakness in the approach going forward. And there's also an inherent reticence among Republicans, it seems, to actually spend much more money. We saw this in 2008, 2009 as well, where you got a few rounds of funding passed and everyone figured we would just do the rest and perfect this um, in future rounds and then quickly discovered the political capital um, wasn't really there to pass more rounds. And, And I think we'll have more rounds of fiscal stimulus here, but I think that the conversation is increasingly shifting Um, towards a skeptical side on spending more money on this and the way it's being directed, as you point out, is towards, you know, tax tweaks that aren't really going to help people who don't have jobs or pensioners, for example. Um, That's worrisome. I think no one Mm -hmm. should be actually worried about how to pay for this war right now. That's a totally inappropriate question to be asking at this point. Deficit financing is the answer for the U.S. Megan Green, what's the green Gini coefficient look like for America? I mean, it's a it's a complex math and it's a complex geometry, but it's real simple. Inequalities are going to widen. James Diamond is talking about it and others. Is it just simple? You would believe out of this pandemic inequality widens? Yep. I think, unfortunately, inequality gets worse. Um, the people who lost their jobs were the hourly service workers who've never got wage gains in the past recoveries. So they hadn't even gotten back on their feet since the last crisis. And now they've been knocked down again. Um, Market concentration should increase significantly, which undermines workers' ability to negotiate their wages. Big companies with access to capital markets take over for the small independent shops that are getting wiped out by this. So unfortunately, I think there will be greater inequality. We'll have higher taxes off the back of this, so maybe there will be some distribution to offset a bit of that. But generally, I think the U.S. has had a problem with income inequality going into this. The Gini coefficient is just under 0.5% in the U.S. 
which is pretty high. It's been rising since 1980, and it's just going to go higher. Is the Fed exacerbating that? I mean, the focus really very much on the Federal Reserve and its actions, especially given the disagreements in Congress. But a lot of the Fed stimulus has really gone toward corporations. And I'm wondering how much that's factoring in here to the wealth gap. So, yeah, every action by the Fed has distributive effects, um, and it may be exacerbating that, although the Fed is also providing funding to small businesses, um, and so that feeds through into those who are more vulnerable. Um, That being said, you know, the Fed has to step in. So I I actually think we can't blame the Fed on this one. Um, Maybe further down the line, we'll need to figure out how to tweak this, but... um, the Fed right now ha- had to step in to get rid of market dislocations, without which we would have had um, an even bigger crisis that would have hit the most vulnerable even harder. Megan, you know better than that. We will find a way of blaming the Federal Reserve. One hundred percent. I know you've been at Harvard for a little while, but that's not how this works. You know that. <clears throat> we find ways Fair to blame enough. the Fed. That's what you we know, do on, John, on shows John. like this. She had her choice of like six schools, and she just took the one closest to Fenway Park. And, I know exactly know, the reasoning for all of it, but I just you know you know been around academia just a month too long. That's what we do here. We blame the Fed for stuff. Megan, we love you. Thank you for joining us, Megan Green of Harvard. Away from the Bloomberg School of Public Health is their huge medical establishment, Lawrence is expert at JHU in emergency medicine. And I asked her not about the death, but about the case dynamics right now. Here is Lauren Sauer. We're seeing a lot of cases of um, middle-aged Americans who um, have these comorbidities, but we're also seeing younger people as well. Um, So I think the early data that that we saw that this was all affecting the elderly with these comorbid populations is not necessarily true. We have a wide age range um, in our population. We have a lot of um, essential workers who have been working this whole time. We have a very large Hispanic population that we're serving at Hopkins right now, and I think that's true in many cities across the country. I mean, it's fascinating here to see the idea that in certain geographies we're going back, and yeah, it's the younger people going back and all that. When you see younger people trying to get back to what we knew, do you feel like they're at a greater risk because they think the only one that gets the virus is 75 and over? I think that early messaging about it only being the elderly didn't help. I think we saw young people resistant to social distancing, resistant to some of the other public health approaches that we use. Um, and, you know, they were they exactly like you're saying, we're still going out. They were still interacting socially. And and I think we're seeing the effects of that, that resistance to adopting these measures. I think that's what we're seeing right now. I also think that um, these people are... Um, they are part of the essential workforce. So we're seeing healthcare workers. We're see, uh, across the country, we're seeing people from these meatpacking plants, from farms, from food processing centers, um, and, and they are younger um, folks as well. Lauren Sauer, talk to me a little bit about this Moderna vaccine that then we had reports yesterday that it, it just didn't give us enough information to know whether it was going in the right direction. Are, are we going to have news flows like that more regularly? It's not uncommon for uh, these companies to put out press releases, but usually they have data attached to them. Um, this report showed that the, um, the the people in the study, eight people that they had 
um, conducted the full review of had neutralizing antibodies, which is good. So um, they basically saw that people in four of the different arms that they built um, developed neutralizing antibodies. The challenge with it only being eight people is partially because it takes a long time to do the neutralizing antibody research. Um, and we didn't hear from the other, I think it was 30, 35 or 36 uh, trial participants as to how they did or why they didn't develop neutralizing antibodies, or even if they didn't develop them. Um, we need more time to understand those data. And so there's no, there's no way to know what these data mean. Um, and so I think that's what we're all waiting for. We're waiting for that resulting data set to do that analysis, to know if the response is going to be durable, to know, um, you know, what the rest of that vaccine population looks like. So I think we still have a ways to go. Um, it was a surprisingly upbeat uh, result, but I think it, it, it is definitely a positive finding. We just, we just have to wait and see what happens next. What do you make of what we've heard from the World Health Organization overall? So we had the Health Assembly. I mean, who's in charge of briefing governments in this? Do you rely on the World Health Organization, or is it each country for their own? Yeah, I think the World Health Organization is still our, our number one leading international body, um, serving all of these member states, and um, they are putting in place the structure by which this entire international response is happening. Um, we did hear, you know, it's a digital uh, World Health Assembly. It's just a couple of days, so I think it's not going to be the same as it normally is. We did hear calls from the EU and Australia for an inquiry into the origins of the COVID-19 outbreak, which um, clearly seems to be directed at China, even though China wasn't specifically named. Um, and I, I think that there is some, there remains some politi politicization around um, China's role in this outbreak response. So um, not even the origins, but, but how that early response occurred. And so I think we'll continue to see tensions um, around the assembly, but we have to continue to support the WHO and their role in, in global pandemic preparedness and response. Lauren Sauer, love to talk to her. Johns yep. Hopkins University, really quite brave in emergency medicine uh, down there, that first line that we see at any hospital. Paul Sweeney and I wanted to find somebody who could rationalize Dow 47,000. That would be Ron Temple of Lazard, head of U.S. equities, and of course one of our most astute guests with his experience on Wall Street about trying to push away the noise. Ron, we've never seen the noise like this. We've got 20% plus unemployment rate on and on. You know the drill is well. How do I keep my mind focused on Dow 24,000? I'm trying to make 7% a year, and someday out there it'll be Dow 50,000. How do I maintain that discipline? Well, that's, that's a really tough challenge, obviously. So I think, you know, in the near term, I would caution about getting too caught up in the day-to-day -day and really start thinking, try to keep yourself thinking about the long-term investment potential of different companies. Um, when you're making these investments, I would say point number one is it's really important to be active right now. I think you're going to have a lot of dispersion within this market over the next day, 12 to 18 months as the economic implications unfold. Some companies aren't going to make it. Some companies will make it, but by the skin of their teeth. And some companies actually are going to thrive and pick up market share. And so when you're really thinking about how you're going to achieve your investment objectives over the next, say, five to 10 years, I think it's critical to really focus on the companies with the balance sheet strength and the funding and liquidity profiles to make it through this downturn and not only make it through 
but win some extra competitive advantage market share and grow their profit potential. So I think that should be the eye on the prize is picking those securities and avoiding, uh, avoiding the losers, which we obviously all try to do on a daily basis. Tom, I think one of the reasons you like Ron is because he is a Duke graduate, and we all know it is, quality it is. coming yes, out of there. Ron, so every day a Duke graduate, absolutely. So, Tom, as you think about kind of where we are right now, a really solid rebound off of that thirty-four percent pullback when the you know the pandemic really gripped the market back there in early and mid March. Do you feel comfortable where the market is here, or do you think feel like it's gotten a little bit ahead of itself, given some of that dire economic data that we're experiencing and likely to experience in the quarters to come? You know, it's, it's interesting. When we look at the market, I mean, the market itself has rebounded a lot, like you say. The, the market, as of yesterday's close, was down just under 10% from the peak, but the median stock was down 17%. So I think one thing to be careful of is the index tells one story, but there are a lot of different stories underneath mm-hmm. that index. That said, I do worry that the market is a little ahead of itself in terms of optimism and and not necessarily thinking comprehensively enough about the scenarios that might unfold. For example, I mean, I'm very, you know, it was very good to see positive news coming out regarding the potential for a vaccine on Monday. Um, I do think that's good news, but our analysis still says at the earliest you get a vaccine for COVID-19 that's available for widespread use early next year. Now, that basically is one scenario. Um, what that doesn't take into account is the risk that you get second or third waves of infections. Um, so I've been watching, for example, very closely in Germany. One month ago today, they started reopening small, small businesses, say shops. I think the limit was up to 8,800 square feet. Um, we're starting to you know, really carefully watch the infection numbers, the new case numbers, mm-hmm. to see what happens when you start to reopen. So I don't think the market is necessarily pricing in the risk of a second or third wave um, the risk that the vaccines might not be available as quickly as possible, and how that'll play out in different parts of the market. Yeah. Ron, there's so many obvious questions that Paul and I want to talk to you about over the next three hours. Uh, but, uh, Ron, I've, I've really got to ask about how you approach these wonder stocks that just go up and up and up. And obviously, it's associated with Jim Cramer's wonderful phrase, the fangs, and I get all that as well. But the 10 or so stocks out there, what what do you do? I mean, if you own them, what do you do? And do you climb on board if you're not? Well, I, I think the biggest challenge with some of these, well, part one, this kind of goes back to our first question. When, when I'm thinking about these companies, I'm thinking about what does their balance sheet look like? Um, do they have a lot of cash on the balance sheet? What strategic optionality is that going to give them over the next few years? And by the way, you know, I'm, I'm assuming we're talking primarily tech stocks. If I think back to 12 months ago, a lot of the tech industry seemed to be in a kind of regulatory, political, reputational yeah. bullseye. If anything, they've come through this looking better and have proven in many cases that they're more mission critical than people would have thought of. So their position has improved there. In some cases, not all, They've got great balance sheets where they can actually pull off buying in even more capabilities or basically developing their own, where some of their competitors who have weak balance sheets are no longer as competitive. Um, And then I'm thinking about, again, what's their balance sheet potential? And I think the key with any of these stocks is there's a real balancing act here of thinking far enough into the future that you don't miss the potential, but not getting so irrational that you say, well, if you think out 20 years, they're going to really be great. Well, you know, 20 years is pretty far beyond anyone's crystal ball. So, so right. trying to kind of balance out how far you have to think in the future, recognizing yeah. it maybe on a short-term basis they get overvalued, but 
But you know what? They might grow their earnings in the next 6 to 12 months enough to make you think, I want to buy it back at the same price, so then you shouldn't be selling it. I mean, Paul, this is fascinating because I think so many of our listeners, including me, long-term is a three-year vision on Amazon or Netflix <laughs> or whatever. Amazon, another all-time high today. Mm-hmm. So, Ron, you know, one of the things that people have been talking about I find fascinating is, will this pandemic fundamentally alter consumer behavior in any ways? And if so, how do you plan for it as from an investment standpoint? Are, you know, is it just working from home more? Are people going to spend less, save more? Are you starting to think about some of those bigger macro issues? Yeah, we're definitely thinking about that. I do think, by the way, there's a propensity to assume during a downturn or a crisis that everything's going to change forever. Well, the reality is, I think as soon as restaurants and bars are open, a lot of people are going to be pretty eager to go back, assuming they know they're safe, right? So, so to me, the kind of the milestone I'm really watching for is a vaccine that we can use broadly globally. Now, once that vaccine's available, I think a lot of things are going to go back to the way they were. Some of the things I think won't. I do think working from home will become more common. That's been discussed a lot. But that does have implications for how many miles people drive. It has implications for oil consumption, for transport use. But when I really step back, I think the thing that has not been discussed enough is what's going to happen to savings and spending behavior in general. Because coming out of this, countries, companies, and households are going to have a lot more debt. And by the way, really importantly, even a year ago or early this year, I was talking before COVID about the upcoming crisis we were going to have on the retirement side. Half the baby boomers have retired. The other half are within a decade of retirement. And in general, making a broad sweeping statement, they don't have enough savings to retire even before. Well, the what are you going to do about that? Let's rip up the script here. It's like, you know, Ron, you know, Roger Ferguson is leading this debate. What is the national solution now? Isn't it just, to, just for starters to increase the amount people can put aside? Well, you know, I think what we found in our study of the retirement crisis Please. is not that people could put, need to put more aside. It's they don't have the income to put anything aside. I mean, so when we look oh, at the fair. percentage of households, you know, if you think about it, defined benefit programs are largely gone. I think it's around 30% of the country still has yeah. access to a DB program. <clears throat> of the people other, other than that, 60% of the people have a defined contribution program. 40% have nothing. Mm. So you've got a lot of people who don't have a dime put away in a retirement account. And part of the reason for that is they just don't make enough money to pay their bills today, much less put away money for retirement. So I think it's going to be multifaceted in terms of solution. One is there's going to have to be more generous Social Security benefits which, by the way, is the opposite of what a lot of the conversation has been for the last 20 years. But maybe it just needs to be more progressive, where you're really focusing those resources on people who need it the most. Um, Two is allowing people to put money away. Three is making it more accessible. What we found is around 40% of the people who work for small businesses have no access to a defined contribution program at all. The employer doesn't offer it. So let's find a way to offer it, not through the employer, so you always have access to a 401k. And so I think there are a number of things we can do around getting access to programs, reinforcing the stability of Social Security, and frankly, reinforcing the financial solvency of defined benefit programs that are still out there because they're really critical to a big part of the population. Ron Temple, we're going to get you back on to do this again. I'd love to do a joint interview with you and uh, 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 Roger Ferguson at TIA Cref on this with his leadership on this issue. Folks, huge deal. I want to shout out in Boston uh, to Boston College, which I think is just the best retirement center uh, going. Ron Temple uh, from Duke University is with Lazard. (laughs) Thank you so much, Ron, uh, for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide 
I'm Bloomberg Radio.